Well, as we uh, continue this faith series, uh, we're landing on Father's Day. Father's Day, when a lot of dads out there wake up to some kind of gift, some kind of new gimmicky t-shirt or a pair of socks, something like that. And I saw this year, one of the greatest Father's Day gifts out there uh, is a self uh, automated lawnmower, which I was like, yes, I'm interested in this. But Janae told me she's not willing to pay $2,500 for a tiny little robot that cuts our grass. So I'm stuck to still doing that this year. But we, uh, we often think about the greatest gifts that we've received, don't we? We think about, well, what did we get for our birthdays, Christmas? I think a harder question is to ask ourselves, what is the greatest gift that we've ever given? What's the greatest gift that you've ever given? Sometimes we have to think about that because everybody's different. And so what might be a really great gift for one person is not for another. And this is where things like the love languages are really helpful. I don't know whether you've heard of this, but about... Uh, 30 years ago now, there was a book written called The Five Love Languages. And the idea of this book was that there is five kind of basic ways in which people show love and receive love. Uh, And the five different languages are words of affirmation, uh, physical touch, quality time, acts of service, and then tangible gifts. And I'm sure even as I list those off you, you can kind of think, yeah, I think that's, that's my love language. That's the way in which I most often receive love. Now, of course, the the best place to find this out is in marriage, because I, being a very hopeless romantic, I thought that the best way to love my wife was to shower her with gifts of various kinds. So when we were first dating, I would buy her huge teddy bears, flowers, chocolates, all this. And slowly over time, I came to realize that these were not Janae's love language, that she was not as excited about these things as I was. Now, she was very kind about it. She always allowed me to be a little bit ridiculous. But what I discovered is that my wife's love language is actually acts of service. So it means so much more to her when I do something for her than when I give her a gift. And so this is always a nightmare around birthdays because I asked Janae, hey, what would you like me to get you for your birthday this year? Is there anything you want? And she always says, no, just help me around the house. That would be great. And every year, no matter how much I know she's telling me the truth, I feel like this is a trap. And if I don't get this for you, this is going to end badly for me. But let me ask you this really strange question. What do you suppose God's love language is? Now, that's a bit of a silly question because God's perfect in love. He doesn't really have love languages. It's, it's not something that we can apply to him. But the Bible does tell us that there is something which pleases God. And it's faith. This is what the opening of Hebrews 11 tells us. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation, and by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And it goes on to say in verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so what we find is that faith is the language by which we can express back to God the love that he's shown to us. But it's not some magic feeling that we should conjure up in ourselves. It's not simply this kind of feeling we have. And it's not just intellectual agreement. It's not just saying, well, we agree with what the Bible says. Faith is belief in action. Pastor Jeff preached last week. It was a fantastic sermon. would encourage you to go back and listen to it again if you have a chance. And he said two things that I wrote down because they were so 
impactful for me in thinking about this issue of faith. He said that faith is living as if God is telling the truth. And he also said that faith is a transfer of trust which requires obedience. So again, we see that faith is is belief in action. It motivates us, it changes us. And the author of Hebrews knows that. And so what he's going to do to try and help us understand this question of faith is he's going to list out regular people, just like me and you, who demonstrate in their lives what faith looked like. And the first person on that list is someone called Abel. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now, you may not be aware, but Abel is not a character that gets a lot of space in the Bible. And in fact, his entire life takes place in eight verses. He's born in verse 1 of uh, Genesis 4, and by verse 8, he's gone. So what could we possibly learn in eight verses about the significance of faith? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're going to learn three things. We're going to learn about the offering of faith, about the heart of faith, and about the witness of faith. So let's talk about the offering of faith. Now I am, uh, in my own mind, I, I like to think that I'm the master of doing the minimum, okay? I, I'm the kind of guy that likes to uh, not really give everything that I could give. I like to just give what's necessary. And you, I, this was the worst when I was in school. I remember being uh, in an English class in England, learning about To Kill a Mockingbird, and uh, we had to read this book, and kind of as you do when you're a high school English student, you kind of give your critique, you give your thoughts, and I would not read the entire book. Uh, and my sister, who's a teacher, she's a lot older than me, she was a teacher at the time, she was so frustrated watching me do the bare minimum. And I remember I, I watched the Gregory Peck movie in an effort to not read the book. And she was so frustrated, she, she would say to me, don't you want to give your best? Don't you want to do as well in this class as you possibly can? But I was the master of the minimum. Now, this story is about someone who is in some ways the master of the minimum. We're told in Genesis 4, 1 through 5, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've got a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also bought of the first, brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The story of Cain and Abel is a story of two brothers who both bring their offerings to God but get very different reactions, very different responses. And I think it's because what we offer to God matters. What we bring to God matters. Here's what we know about Cain and Abel. We know that they're the children of Adam and Eve, so they are the first generation outside of the Garden of Eden. We know that Cain was the older brother, and he's a farmer. He works the land, he grows crops, and his younger brother Abel is a rancher. He kept livestock, kept sheep. And over the course of time, these brothers, both of them, felt that it was right, it was good to offer to God part of their income, part of their livelihood. This is kind of a shadow of what would eventually become a whole system of sacrifice that the people of Israel would live from. 
But here's what we're told is that God looked favorably on Abel's offering, but not on Cain's. Now, people have kind of debated for years and years, what, what was the difference here? Why would God look on Abel with favor, but not on Cain? Was it because Abel offered livestock? Was it because it was an animal sacrifice that there was the shedding of blood that was kind of a, a picture of what would become the sacrificial system? Now, those are all interesting thoughts, but whatever I've found when I'm studying the Bible is that you have to pay attention to the details. And, and what we're told is that Abel brought his fat portions in his firstborn. That's the detail in this story. We're not told much about Cain's offering, but we are told about Abel's. And what we're told is that Abel isn't just giving what he can afford. He isn't giving what's convenient. He isn't giving what's simple. He certainly isn't giving the minimum. Abel is bringing to God something that costs him. If you're a rancher and you're giving away the firstborn of your flock, what if you don't have many more sheep born that year? That's your livelihood you've just given away. The fat portions, the very best, the, the healthiest ones. Abel clearly trusts God to provide for his needs, even if he gives him the very best that he has. That's the posture of faith. Tim Keller says this, he says that there's a kind of person who is pretty calculating is absolutely making sure that they give God just what they have to. And then there's a kind of person who is open-hearted. They're not calculating. There's joy, there's abandon, there's trust. And that's what we see in Abel's heart. Do you see that in yourself? Or perhaps do we see more of Cain? And we might say, well, we don't, we don't make offerings like this anymore. We aren't uh, making sacrifices of animals. We aren't making grain offerings. And that's true. We're actually giving something much, much more important. Romans 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Absolutely right. We don't give grain. We don't give livestock. We give our very selves to God in worship. When we wake up in the morning, the, the life of the Christian should start with us saying, God, here I am. I offer myself to you this day, my interactions, my conversations, my relationships. Here I am ready to serve you, to give you my best. When we head into work, we can sit down in meetings with our co-workers and we can say, Father, I offer myself to you in my workplace. Let me be an encouragement to my co-workers. Let me speak about you. Let me demonstrate my faith to them. Let me show them who you are. When we get home, we can say to God, I offer you myself in my marriage and my parenting. Let me give my wife and my kids my best. Don't let me come home empty from giving everything I have to work. Let me come home and, and offer because of you, through you, the best that I have. And that's the other important thing we have to keep in mind. Because there's a very subtle difference between Cain and Abel. And we might miss it. See, both of them are bringing something to God. Both of them are trying to give God what they think is right. Both of them believe God deserves something, but only one of them thinks that God deserves their best. 
You know, it's possible to be in church, to be moral, to be decent, to be kind, but still not be offering to God everything that you have. Not be willing to give God what he is worth. See, if I'm honest about my own heart, and if I'm honest about most of what I see in the church, it's an easy temptation to live like Cain instead of Abel. It's easy to say to God, well, you can have some of my time, but don't take all of it, because there's a lot of things that I want to do, and so I can't give you everything. It's easy to say to God, you can have some of my resources, but don't ask too much of me, because I've got to take care of myself. It's easy to say, you can have some of my relationships, but I don't want you involved in all of them. It's easy to say, you can have some of my energy, but I don't want this Jesus thing to take over my whole life. What are you offering some of that you need to offer all of? What are you keeping in your hands that needs to be surrendered to God's? See, faith moves us to give God our very best because it believes the best about God. Abel wasn't doing this out of some sense of obligation. He was doing it because in his heart, he trusted the God he was making his offering to. He trusted him to provide, to care, to love. And that's why what we give to God matters is because it reveals the heart of our faith. What we give reveals what's inside of our hearts. The heart of faith. Now, my dad, uh, I always think about my dad, some of the, the things he did on Father's Day, of course, we all do. Uh, and one of the things that my dad was known for, especially when we were younger, is he had very specific opinions about the things that we should be eating as kids. And we disagreed with him. And uh, I remember this one occasion, this is my sister, praise God this was not me. Uh, she came home from school one day, and my dad had made her a sandwich. He said, hey, I've made dinner for you. Here you go. Here's a sandwich. And my sister kind of agreed, went along, started eating the sandwich, and it tasted weird. It tasted a little rubbery. And at the end of eating it, she stomached it down because she's, she's great. She's, she, wanted to do what, she wanted to show gratitude for her dad. And my dad says, the end, you know what you just ate? She says, I don't know, like a, a roast beef sandwich. He said, that was cow tongue. Yes, I'm glad that that's the reaction because I, I have met some people who are like, oh, that sounds great. I'm troubled by that. Like who, who was the guy that said, you know which part of the cow looks really good? Like, I, I'm just, it's strange. You know, and so he, he hid this inside. Looked like an ordinary sandwich, looked like regular dinner, but inside was something quite surprising. You know, inside of Cain's offering, there was something surprising too. There was something hidden in there that God could see that Cain couldn't. Told Stan, Genesis 4, verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? 
You see what was hiding inside of Cain. You see what was lacking beneath what appeared to be just as much a religious, moral man and his brother. See, the boys' offerings are not in and of themselves the substance of their faith. They are the indicators of it. They are the temperature gauges of their faith. Abel's offering was this faith that God would provide, that he was the perfect shepherd, that he was trustworthy. But Cain's offering revealed something else entirely. Cain's offering revealed his lack of faith, and everything that happened after that offering proved it. Cain is so deeply wounded that God would commend his brother and show grace and love to his brother. He's bitter, he's angry. It shows that he doesn't trust God's judgment. It shows that he thinks that God is unfair. But I want us to just stop for a second and look at the absolutely astounding response of God to Cain. And this should be the most shocking part of this whole story to us. First, Notice that God does not punish Cain for his weak offering. He doesn't punish him for not giving what he should have. He doesn't even raise that. He simply commends his brother. He simply rewards the one who had shown faith. And then second, this is what God says to Cain. He comes to him and the Lord says, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? Now it's easy to think in that moment that he is maybe berating Cain, but that's not what's happening. See, this, this phrase, your face has fallen, is actually a Hebrew expression for depression. What's actually happening in this moment is God is coming to the man who has failed and saying, son, why are you depressed? What's wrong, son? What's happening inside of you? He's asking him questions. He's pursuing. He's trying to get him to understand his own heart. This is a tender, gracious Loving God who loves his son Cain. And he even says to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Essentially saying to Cain, my favor, my love, my grace is as available to you, Cain, as it is to your brother. If you do what is right, will I not reward you? Will I not bless you? Will I not show you my favor as well? I feel like we all just have to pause for a second and understand that here, even in the midst of someone's sin and brokenness and bitterness, is a God that is moving toward them, is showing grace, is showing care. It is scandalous, extravagant grace. But Cain can't see it. The lack of faith in Cain's heart means that even as God approaches him, and cares for him, and counsels him, Cain's blind to it. He's deaf to it. Do you know that nothing will dull your senses to the tender voice of God more than anger and jealousy and bitterness? It'll make you deaf to God's love for you. That's what happens to Cain. He doesn't live like God's telling him the truth. And we know that he rose up, and that this darkness, this sin that was crouching, latches a hold of him, rises up against Abel and kills him. And then he says, when God asks him, where is your brother? I don't know. It's not my problem. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to track where he goes? See how he sidesteps God's questions? 
You know, when God asks you a question, he's not asking for information. God knows. He's asking a question to get you to look at yourself. It's worth pointing out as well that Cain's the older brother, so yeah, he is absolutely his brother's keeper. But that's not the most awful part of that. It's not the, the murder itself is tragic. It's awful. It's heartbreaking. But the most awful part about this, God warned Cain that this was coming. God tried to, to teach Cain, to show him what was lacking inside of him. He says, sin is crouching. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Why does an animal crouch? It's two reasons. An animal crouches so that it can be hidden from you, so that you won't see it coming. And the second is so that it can be ready to attack. That's what sin was waiting to do to Cain. Cain did not have faith that God could see the dangers ahead. He ignored his counsel. He didn't live like he was telling the truth. And his sin mastered him. It ruled him to the point where he would take his own brother's life. You know, even the most religious of us can suffer from that, that blindness. Jesus says to the leaders of his day, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Isn't that the same warning that God gave Cain? You don't see what's inside of yourselves. You think that everything is okay. You think that you're justified, but there is something dangerous inside of your hearts. And then most interestingly, in that same chapter of Matthew, as Jesus is kind of critiquing the leaders, he finishes, he gets to verse 34 and 35, and he says, Therefore I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, And some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel. So Jesus is saying, I'm trying to warn you. I'm trying to care for you. I'm trying to counsel you. I'm trying to teach you what is lurking in the shadows. And if you don't heed my counsel, if you don't listen, then upon you is going to come the same fate that came upon Cain. You'll reject the care, you'll reject the counsel, and the righteous blood on earth will cry out, even the blood of righteous Abel. Jesus says, Abel, righteous man. See, this whole section of Cain and Abel's story, it isn't just about Abel trusting God with his resources. It's not just about what he gave him in the offering. It's about him trusting God with his heart. Abel says, you can have what's in my hands, and you can have what's inside of me too. Cain withheld both from God. The heart of faith is open before God. It doesn't sidestep his questions. And so what we need to ask ourselves today is, what's the condition of our heart? Don't be quick to assume that you're far from Cain. Because many of us will say, well, maybe I'm not giving God everything that I could be giving him, but my heart's in the right place. I'm not a murderer. And the truth is, if our hearts were in the right place, we'd be giving God what he deserves. And that's the point. That's what the heart of faith is about. Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you hide anger in your heart, then you've already murdered him. 
If you look lustfully, then you've already committed adultery. It's what the Pharisees missed, and it's what we miss so often. That if we are not careful, those things that we withhold, that we hide, that we deny, will become our masters. What's the sin in your life that you're not paying attention to? What's the sin that you justify? By faith, come to the God who cares for you, who counsels you, who even in your worst moments will sit with you. Trust him. Trust him that he is a better steward of your possessions in your heart than you are. Last thing that we see is the witness of faith. We're told in Hebrews 11:4 again, by faith, Abel offered to God a most acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Is it as remarkable to you as it is to me that the author of Hebrews is saying of a man whose only biblical recorded action was a simple offering that his faith still speaks? Keep in mind that he is the first entry on a list that's going to include the kind of people who had, by faith, parted oceans, by faith, conquered giants. He's Abel in that same list. Abel was a regular guy who, in faith, chose to give the best of what he had to God. And that spoke something about him that lasted far beyond his earthly life. It witnessed to the God who was enough for him. It proclaimed to the world that God is good, that he is trustworthy. So you don't need to be the next Moses for your faith to make an impact. You don't need to be the next King David for your faith to speak as loudly as Abel's. You need to bring what you have. You need to trust that God cares for you. And let that move into the way that you react, the way that you live, the way that you treat people, the way that you spend your money, the way that you spend your time. Not to buy some kind of favor, but to proclaim that God is good, that he's worthy. You know, I've been a pastor now for about five years. And so I'm just now kind of entering a stage of ministry where uh, both a blessing and a a curse, I'm doing more funerals. I say it's a blessing and a curse because, of course, it's, it's heartbreaking whenever you are at a funeral and you're saying goodbye and that you're feeling the grief of that loss and the pain of the loss. But I also say it's a blessing, or perhaps I would say it's a privilege, because I have got to sit and hear the witness of faith of so many people, some of whom I never knew myself. And I find myself sometimes being at funerals, hearing the stories and the legacies of people who've gone to be with the Lord, not having known them, and finding myself in tears, saying, God, I hope that I can have a legacy like that. I hope that the witness of my faith can speak the same things as that. The world is desperate for a witness to the God who's good, who can be trusted, and who is enough. It's desperate. But sadly, the truth is that sometimes our unwillingness to give God our best tells the world, he's not worth your time. Why would the well trust Jesus when so often we don't? Your faith is communicating a message to those around you about God, for better or for worse. 
I want you to challenge yourself this morning and let the, the story of Cain and Abel, let the words of Hebrews ask you this question. What's your faith saying about God? What is the witness of your faith? Frederick Beaconer says that the opposite of faith is fear. Don't be led by fear. Let your heart trust the one who is good, who is worthy. Now that's not all that Abel's faith witnesses to. At the end of the story, the Lord says to Cain, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. See, Abel's faith proclaimed the goodness of God, but his blood cried out for justice. He cried out for God to do something. And this is perhaps the most important witness that Abel gives us. Because Abel's blood cried for justice because of the brokenness of the world, that a brother would turn against brother. It says to God, you've got to do something about this. This is not right. It's broken. It needs to be fixed. It needs to be redeemed. And so years later, God would respond. Another man would show up who was very similar to Abel. A man who came into a world filled with canes. People who were religiously observant, people who were all trying to do the right thing, but who were withholding their hearts and their hands from God. People who were always bringing their offerings, honoring the sacrificial system, and yet in their hearts they were filled with jealousy, bitterness, anger, hostility. And these Cains, they hated this new Abel. They were jealous of him, and they slew him, as Cain did his brother. But something different happened. When this brother was slew, his blood cried out as well, but it cried out for a new justice. This is what the author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 12. He says, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the one whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, we're all of us Cain's. We're all of us withholding things from God. We're all of us hiding the things in our hearts that need to be set right. But there is one whose blood cries out for justice, not our condemnation, but our redemption. There's a one whose blood, when it cries out from the ground, cries for mercy, for Cain's like me. And this is ultimately, this is the heart of Abel's faith. This is the witness of his faith. This is what he speaks loudest about, the God who's faithful, who deserves the best from us because he gives us the best, his own son. The God who has given us abundantly more than we can ever ask or hope for in the person of Christ. Our charge is to join Abel in entrusting ourselves to the one who is worthy and to place our faith in him. And my prayer for us today is that our lives would speak a better word. That we would offer ourselves through faith to God's purposes in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great grace towards us. If we're honest, when we read this story, there's much of Cain that we can see in our own hearts. We can find those places where we've withheld ourselves from you. We've withheld offerings. We've withheld our hearts. 
And yet, Father, just as you approached Cain, you approach us. You put your grace on us, your love on us, your mercy on us, and you offer us your son. God, may we take hold of him, may we trust him, and may we, like Abel, by our faith, offer to you a better sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.